0: Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hello, Keegan. Hello, Madigan. So, we did mention on the mini-episode that we were going to devote this episode to not only the Derek Chauvin verdict uh, and trial, but also everything surrounding that and George Floyd's life as well and kind of our final thoughts and feelings about this trial in particular. Yeah, I mean,
1: this monumental moment in history, really. Like, Mm -hmm. it kind of felt like... A similar, I mean, I felt a lot of the same feelings waiting for the verdict that I did, waiting for the results of the election to come in. You know, it really felt like this was, it felt like a really big moment in that time. And it it was, and it was, you know. It is, I mean, I think that this trial and George Floyd's death has been a huge moment in history and having the trial coming to close really felt like all of those emotions from last year are coming back up again
0: yeah absolutely so I had a lot of hope for this whenever the verdict came back only 10 and a half hours into deliberation you
1: were hopeful
0: yes I was actually hopeful I was actually hopeful because I of could how only quick.
1: think of OJ in my mind with the quick verdict
0: well in In this case, though, I mean, and here's the sad thing. Here is the very sad thing. The defense case, as we will, you know, kind of touch on a little bit later, was incredibly weak. And the
1: prosecution... It was surprisingly weak. It was very weak. It was very, very weak. I was shocked at how little they brought. Yeah,
0: they they brought almost nothing. I mean, it was was very speculative. Yeah. uh, And what they did bring, I mean, they did manage to bring a a medical expert who said...
1: We're mm-hmm. going to talk about that, because that's a lot of bullshit that they brought.
0: Well, and they, it was called out
1: as bullshit pretty much right it's away the It's the oldest trick in the book. We're going to get into it. It is the oldest trick in the book that they tried to use, and it didn't work. Like, whatever. Right.
0: No, it didn't work. I mean, and the prosecution's case was actually very thorough and professional. And emotional. Um, this was also a murder that was executed in broad daylight on camera. So why then, you know, kind of speaking to the fact that for me, 10 and a half hours of deliberation made me hopeful, but still very cautiously hopeful. Uh, the longer we had to wait. I mean, I waited an hour. I turned on the news right when they said like, okay, yeah, it's gonna come in uh, an hour to an hour and a half from now. And then it was even longer than that. Yeah. Um. But it, it was still very hard for me, even being hopeful that we were going to get a guilty verdict because there is also that small part of your brain. That's like, okay, but history has taught you otherwise. Exa- and even that's though, why
1: I couldn't allow myself because I it, was too scared. But
0: that is what's so sad about this is yeah. that his guilt was clear from the very beginning. The defense's case was incredibly weak. We have it on camera, but because of the history of murders by police of unarmed black civilians in particular, uh, we were scared. Like, everybody yeah. was scared. And that should really speak to the state of our nation that we yeah. were that Still nervous scared. about this. Yeah, but yeah. I do,
1: I gotta, I gotta give it to Darnella Frazier, that 17-year-old yes. who got the footage. I mean, there was a couple different people that got footage, but Darnella Frazier in particular, goddamn girl, like, uh- amazing because I'm hoping that now that there's people that are able to and willing to pull out their phones and record these things that I'm hoping that that will be a great new wave of accountability. Again, we're going to use that word a lot because you cannot deny what you're seeing. And the fact that there's been so many people on the internet that are able to distort What we all see with our own two eyes. I was just concerned because I don't know who's on the jury. I don't know their thoughts. I don't know if they've come in with a preconceived idea of this case, even though they're not supposed to. I think that there's so much that's left up in the air with the justice system and leaving it in the hands of jury, real people, that scares me. You know what I mean? So it was like, even though we had all of this great. Evidence and video footage, and anybody, like I said, with two eyes can see that this was cold blooded murder. They're human. They're people. So that I can't always rely on people to give me the result that I want. So that's where that's where my fear was uh, in that you know hour hour and a half of anticipation, waiting on right. my phone and on TV. You know, Right. I mean, and I always think of Philando Castile. Yeah, where
0: well, there Minnesota was no again too. Right. And there was no justice in that case. And that was another very, very clear case to me on video uh, where it didn't make sense that there would be no justice in that case. And right. While while I'm and we're going to talk about this when we talk about our feelings at the end, Uh Uh, we're going to spend the last part of this episode kind of talking about our own personal feelings and thoughts. uh, And I will talk about this more. While I am glad that this person was held accountable for murdering another human being, for abusing their power, I'm still very nervous moving forward. And the reason why is. Because the Minneapolis Police Department, their initial statement after George Floyd's death in May yeah, yeah. was, quote, man dies after medical incident during police interaction. Yeah, that was the headline. Yep. That was the headline. And it wasn't until hours later when Darnella Fraser uh, Fraser uploaded that now viral video displaying those excruciating nine minutes and 29 seconds um, in which George Floyd is being executed in front of everybody, that's the only thing that made the authorities decide to rethink that initial statement. Right. So that makes me very nervous because they will just lie to your face. It doesn't matter how many bystanders there were, um, how many witnesses there were. If you don't have that shit on video, and even when you do, we are still scared that they're going to get away with it. Uh Like, isn't that...
1: They, they still tried to defend it. They after did. And, we, and, we and you know it. what? This is, and, and you're, you're leading me into perfectly the thing that I want to talk about first, and that is um, the culture in Minneapolis a little bit. Because you mentioned Philando Castile. We have George mm-hmm. Floyd. Now we have Dante Wright, whose funeral mm-hmm. I believe was earlier today. We're, record- we're recording on Thursday. Um, so being somebody who, this happened in my backyard. Like this is where I'm from. Right. And I, I have had to examine my perception of where I was from and actually do a little bit of digging as to what's really going on. Because to me right now, the Twin Cities, particularly law enforcement, Minneapolis, seems a lot like a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I think that that is a lot of the attitude around racism in the Twin Cities, particularly before this event happened. So I want to talk a little bit about that because I think that we have a lot of times when those statements are made and you want to present yourself in a certain way I think that's something that Minnesota really likes to tie on to is this Minnesota nice mm-hmm. thing um, I was reading a few articles where different people of color uh, particularly immigrants who have moved from other places who have moved to Minnesota you know kind of what their experience is and one of the women who was interviewed said it's racism with a smile and that really got to me because I always say Minnesota nice we're not really that Nice. We're just gonna smile at you, but we're gonna be thinking right. something else, you know? So right. I, well, you know, I, I feel like Minnesota
0: and other parts of the Midwest, um, but specifically Minnesota, I will say that. I feel like they, they're a like weird, Minnesota has a, a it's a nice very blue. reputation. Yeah. Right. Um but I feel like the same way Minnesota hides behind nice California hi- or Southern California hides behind progressivism, right? Like yes. it's just like, well, we're we're liberal. So that makes people think like we couldn't be racist right. or, you know, and that's not the case at all. And well, in yeah. fact, you know, the police departments here in Los Angeles, there's a huge Don't get history me started of of horrifying racism yeah. within the LAPD and I feel like that's kind of the same elsewhere where yeah it, it, and that it actually makes it scarier
1: because so, you're not looking for it. Yeah. So the first mayor of Minneapolis, I don't even think I need to look at my notes for this. The first mayor of Minneapolis, but a guy by the name of a.a Ames. He's a fucking asshole. Wow, so essentially Ames. Yeah. So he was known as and again I, I'm not even going to pull up this part of my notes cuz I think he was just called the shame of Minneapolis. Ooh, horrible being. So he was part of the originating of the police department. Um, There was already some sort of like small Minneapolis police department, but when Ames became mayor, he pretty much fired everybody that was actually qualified for their jobs and like hired his like gambling buddies, buddies his bros, essentially, mm-hmm. that were not such great people which caused a lot of damage to, you know, this was in like the early 1900s, late 1800s, I think. So that caused a lot of damage to a very new up-and-coming city. Um, Mm -hmm. Another thing that is kind of, you know, hidden amongst Minnesota and Minneapolis in particular, the Minneapolis, the Minneapolis City Council is made up of 12 Democrats and a member of the Green Party. It also has two transgender members, and both of them are Black. So there is this very outward appearance of diversity and inclusion. But there is a huge racial gap in Minnesotans when it comes to educational outcomes and health care, mm-hmm. and particularly home ownership. So Black families own their homes at a lower rate than white families, amongst the largest of such disparities in the country. So there was actually like things written into the deeds of homes. And I know this was common in a lot of different places, but I think it's something that's important to talk about. Deeds being written to keep neighborhoods white, essentially. So mm-hmm. when these neighborhoods were being built and these homes were being sold, there were things written into the deeds that would say that you were not allowed to sell your home to someone who wasn't mm-hmm. white. In yeah, order A redlining. Na- exactly. Yeah. And redlining has been a major issue in Minneapolis All the way to today. So there have been different people who have been in different levels of government in Minnesota who have spoken about their feelings on it, who have said, you know, what's great about this city is great. What's bad about this city is really bad. And I think that that's just that that was an important thing for me to learn more about the dirty history of a place that I think I've always thought about as being kind of rosy and a little bit more progressive. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I've had a good experience with it. And because I'm a privileged white person, it was something that I wasn't really able to see in the history of how all of this happened. So for me, learning about how far back systemic racism goes in a place that pretends that it doesn't have racism was very educational for me and I think a really great eye-opening experience to probably what most places in the world are, you know? Uh,
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that is something that we as Americans really need to come to terms with is that racism more often than not does not look like hood-wearing, cross-burning, calling somebody the N-word, right? Like that's not what racism looks like all of the time. It can look like that in overt instances of racism, but it is far, far, far more nuanced than that. And it is impossible in a city where there has been uh, redlining, where there has been instances in the government or things that are systemic within the system that have been put in place to keep people who are not white um, from being able to advance. It's impossible to fix all of that with outward politeness, right? Like that that, that doesn't fix the underlying deep seated issues or the unconscious subconscious biases that have been deeply rooted or built into systems and family structures and people, you know, and because of all of that redlining and things like that, you're going to grow up with people who look like you. Mm -hmm. generally it's going to keep neighborhoods segregated Yep, uh and it will allow those not being around other people it's going to allow those biases to um,
1: right well and you're going to schools with people who look just like you Mm -hmm. as well you know there's just it's you're cutting people off from having a a broader view of reality right A you true know? diverse experience true yes. yeah because and the city is mostly white still for the most part but we do we do have a fairly large black community we have a fairly large asian community it does kind of depend on like what parts you're in but knowing just where i'm from you know there were the school that was actually in my district I didn't want to go to because I had heard some not so great things about it. And I feel like again, you know, talking about schooling, you're allowing some schools then to maybe not get the right amount of attention and good of course teachers and, you mm-hmm. know, facilities and all that kind of stuff. I opened enrolled and went to another public school. You know, so right. that, I mean, that to me says a lot too. I really
0: want us to try and remember to do an episode on redlining maybe next Black History Month. Yeah. Because It is. I know that that's not the point of this episode, so we're not going to spend too much time talking about it, but it has deep, lasting effects in more than one way. It has real, lasting effects in terms of education because, in general, the neighborhoods that have the most money are the neighborhoods that get the better schools, and if you are able to keep people of color out of neighborhoods that have money, then you are also able to keep them, in large part, out of the better school districts. Uh, You are also preventing, oftentimes, people from being able to earn the same kind of generational wealth as uh, their white counterparts because well, they're yeah, not you're able just, to you're move into them. neighborhoods. Right, and you're not allowing them, even if they're able to purchase homes in other parts of the city, if you're keeping them, um, deliberately stopping them from being able to purchase homes in areas of the city where the property values are going to go up, the most, yeah, you are preventing them from being able to make the same kind of um, generational wealth or allow the same kind of inheritances to their children, that create the same kind of legacy as as their white counterparts, and so exactly. all of this stuff affects. That's what we mean when we say systemic issues yeah. within within our systems, um, and all of this it is going to cause. Issues within society as a whole, even if you don't see it within cities like this, and I feel like not only is Minnesota "quote unquote" nice, and that's <laughs> what people think of yeah. when they think of Minnesota, but also, I mean, I grew up with a lot of people who did hip hop, were very interested in hip hop. Minnesota has Minneapolis. Oh, Minneapolis has is a huge, huge. hip hop.
1: Um, underground kind of community. I actually remember that. So I knew, a, I mean, I didn't know him like personally, but I listened to a rapper from Minneapolis and I remember your ex knowing who he was and being like, oh, yeah. you know who this is? I was oh, like, was yeah, yeah. so weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. mean, my
0: friend who is, who... Still does stuff within the hip hop community in Springfield. Moved to Minneapolis
1: for a while. Yeah, to if you're in that, it's if you're it's in the Midwest, it's a good place to go. And it's mm-hmm. so, and that's another thing is that like we really do. I mean, Minnesota has a lot of opportunity for art, for theater, like it's such a great. It's so beautiful. It's Minneapolis is so beautiful, and that's why, especially seeing the pictures of the National Guard and everything in my city, it was just kind of like, "Get the fuck out! Like you're making it ugly. Go away." Right. Ugh. Well, the, and you know, it really did highlight that the
0: situation is very ugly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it does highlight as well. I think I remember when we first were talking about. It, it, I think we when we were first talking about George Floyd or. Maybe it was Flandre Castile. I don't remember. I was probably George Floyd. But um, I remember you were kind of surprised or not surprised, but like you you were like, it's such a progressive place. I yeah. remember you actually saying that maybe even on this podcast. I'm sure I did. And, and and I do think that it what it does is it highlights that this is built into America. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter where you are. Systems of policing, um, the birth of policing of police unions the creation of them how it all started is racist i mean at its at its core it is racist and so it doesn't really matter where you are and that is not to say that every single individual police officer um Is overtly racist, but it is saying that they are operating within a system and given weapons, given guns, you know, and given power within a system that has operated as a racist system since its conception. And I think that it's
1: important to recognize that you can have unintentional prejudice or bias on things. And that's when it's important to check yourself on that. But I think that a lot of people don't. And that's how that continues. Because if you aren't outwardly using the N-word and wearing a white hood, in your mind, you can tell yourself maybe that you're not racist. Although you may be having some behaviors in your life or responses in your life that you might need to check
0: you know right right and also you know it is very dangerous to not have to confront those unconscious biases that you may have and also be given permission to handle a weapon on the streets of your city like you we have to have police officers have training, better training, more training to confront these biases. At this point, actually, beyond that, I just think that the entire system needs to be stripped and rebuilt.
1: We need to abolish. Yeah, we need to get rid of it and then build it back up. But I I understand. And I think that a lot of it, and and I want to talk about this more when we we get into talking about the trial, because I think it was training and... Use of force was talked about a lot. And I think that, you know, we were just discussing in the mini episode with Makia Bryant um, tactics to de escalate a situation. I think should be taught first and foremost if it isn't already. Again, not a cop, I don't know. But I think that those de escalation tactics should be taught with just as much importance as more important more important yeah than than having the reaction to draw a weapon right your first
0: instinct should be to de-escalate and unfortunately i know that that is not the case in in a lot of there's an entire episode on what is called killology on behind the bastards and it's basically somebody who went in and, and taught police officers how to um how to act in situations. And he calls it killology. I hate it. Right. It's not that should be de-escalation should be the primary goal. That should be what you want to do. Like, right, right. (laughs) Going into a situation. So, yes. But let's get started. Let's 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 talk about George. Let's talk about George. Okay. Okay. let's talk about George Floyd. And this was something that I know you you really this is part of why we're doing a full length episode because I know that you really wanted to take the time to actually talk about him Yes, because, I love him so much. And and <laughs> I do feel like when these things happen and these people reach this like martyrdom status. Yeah. Almost, yeah. That you see them in pictures, you see the same picture oftentimes over uh-huh. and over again. And you hear their name being shouted in the streets but you don't actually know who they are. And you don't actually know anything about them. Um, So I do think it's important.
1: I found his Wikipedia page around the start of the trial when all those feelings were kind of coming back up for me and I wanted to get back into really doing some, you know, looking inside of myself and getting educated a little bit. So I started reading his Wikipedia page and just crying and enjoying myself and loving to learn about this person. And I, I was talking to Max about this. I think that, you know, we talk so much about these huge historical figures on our show. It was so fascinating for me to read the story of, like, he was just a man. Just he a was, person. He was a yeah. person. Yet I was so touched and enthralled by his story still that I think that it's it, it drove home to me a lot, you know, when we say Black Lives Matter, just how much life matters and humanity matters and that was mentioned also by the attorney general after the verdict was read that the people who saw him on that day the bystanders they didn't know who he was they didn't know he was a father and a loved one and a friend and a great football player they saw his humanity and that's why they wanted to help him so right and i do think it's important
0: to drive home you know I think you hit the nail on the head when you said black lives matter, because I feel like especially after last summer, it was a slogan that was trending on Twitter yeah. for months. It was something that everybody said in the streets. It was something that people hung up in their, in their windows of their apartments. And like all of those things are fantastic, but because it was used so much, I feel like sometimes people don't actually stop and think about what that means. Um mm-hmm this is a person's life. Yep. Think about the people in your life and think about if this was something that happened to them, yep. you know, it, and we will talk about it when, as we go through his life, I, I was, he had some incredible things happen in his life. He also made some mistakes Yep. in his life and and it's not all good stuff. You know what I mean? But that doesn't mean he wasn't, a good person at heart. It doesn't mean he wasn't a loved person. It yeah. doesn't mean that he he's not missed right. by by the people in his life. No, and that's I you think. Know.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm hoping also that by telling his story, some of the stigmas that have surrounded his death will start to kind of fall away as well. So let's talk about him. He's a junior. His father was also George Perry Floyd, and his mother was Larsenia or Sissy Jones Floyd. But since George and his dad had the same name, and his parents did divorce when he was two years old, which I can totally understand, my dad was also, he was Frank Jr., my grandma didn't want to call him by her ex-husband's name anymore. So sure. she called him Corky, and his family still calls him Corky to this day. Um, so they would call George Jr. either Perry, which is his middle name, which I love, or of course, as we all know, Big Floyd, because by the time he hit middle school, he was already six feet tall. Yep. Oh yep. my gosh, I wanna see those, I wanna see someone's yearbook picture. With him in it. And it's just going to be all shorties. And then one big guy (laughs) in the back. Um, And I found this really, really amazing that he I I hope he knew this about himself when he was alive, and this isn't something that was discovered later, but he was was the great-great-grandson of a man by the name of Hillary Thomas Stewart Sr., who was born enslaved and acquired his freedom after the Civil War. So when his great-great-grandfather was in his 20s, he acquired 500 acres of land, but he lost it to white farmers who, according to Wikipedia, used legally questionable maneuvers that were common in the south at the Mm -hmm. time which i think is such a crazy full circle moment yes that took me it took me aback when i read that part of his history i thought that was that was pretty poignant well i i also think yeah when you're
0: when you look at that and you look at what happened to george floyd it really underscores black trauma I mean, this is it's, what it's people are itself. saying when they're talking about generational trauma. This is what it is. It You can have somebody, uh, you know, a few generations removed having been enslaved and having lost their land yeah, um, because of racism, and then a few generations later have their great-great-grandson murdered by police in broad daylight. It's and, almost... You know, it,
1: like I don't want to use the word perfect because I don't mean it in a positive way at all, but it's almost its almost like it's written that way. It's a perfect illustration is yes, what it is. It's, yes. it's, it's a
0: perfect illustration of what black trauma, generational trauma looks like.
1: And like how this it, doesn't is what it, is. it doesn't end. It doesn't end.
0: And how white supremacy continues to affect black families to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't matter that that I didn't live through slavery, or Big George didn't live through slavery, uh, Big Floyd didn't live through slavery. You know, it it doesn't matter because it was in him. The effects, the, yeah, the the trauma and and the way that it affects your life continues. It continues to move through families. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know, it's it's just something to. Be aware of. It's something
1: to remember. It really is. Oh, that took me aback when I read it. So like I said, his parents divorced when he was two years old. And so he moved with his siblings and his mother to public housing in Houston's Third Ward. And Big Floyd had a lot of pride for the Third Ward. So the Third Ward is a historically black neighborhood. There's a lot of poverty, um, more crime, things like that. All of the things that go along with it. So he was not given the same I guess privileges as a lot of other people being brought up in public housing Um, but sports for him were a way for him to escape and he felt like he could improve his life that way his tallest height would be six foot four so he was a big dude when he was in high school, he was the co-captain of the basketball team as a power forward. And on the football team, he was a tight end. And I had to ask Max what all this meant because I don't know sports. But his response is, yeah, he had the body type for both. So, oh, well, there you go. Yeah, exactly. And this is pretty cool, too. So in 1992, his football team from high school went to the Texas State Championships. with, And so I know that... Football in Texas is like huge. Like high schools are in Indeed. like yes, like Friday night lights situations. It's yeah. crazy. So to think about your state, your team making it to state, I was like, that's pretty cool, you know? Like that's an awesome thing to remember from your childhood. Um, he was the first of his siblings to go to college and he actually got a football scholarship and he went to the South Florida community college for two years and he also played on the school's basketball team. And then he transferred to Texas A&M University, Kingsville in 1995, where he was also supposed to play basketball, but he ended up dropping out. And so I really, really want to quickly say, because I hate the stigma around dropping out of college, don't go to college and spend the money and waste your money if you don't know what you want to do. There is nothing wrong with, quote unquote, dropping out of school. Okay, End rant.
0: Right. Well, and also, I know that he initially went to college on a scholarship, but I don't know if that scholarship was extended when he transferred to Texas A&M, so there's that, and college is extremely expensive. Yeah. Uh, And even if... The, he had some kind of financial aid or some kind of scholarship when he did transfer. Just being away from your family and having to support yourself through college, uh, especially if you're not able to work, just the living expenses alone. It's a um, lot. It's it's a lot. And so there is no shame. The way that our college system is set up, by the way, is also classist Yeah, <laughs> at minimum yeah. Um, and racist. Uh, in a lot of instances as well so there's a lot of other factors here I mean people like to point to people's lives they like to look at their mistakes yeah they like to look at the things that they've done and say like well you you didn't make it through college you dropped out of college you did xyz without realizing that not everybody it's not equitable not everybody has the same starting point yep um or the same privileges and you cannot judge everybody the yeah, same way, Yeah. period.
1: Well, and it does sound like he was kind of going through some stuff on his own. Uh, I'm about to get to my absolute favorite thing about George Floyd. And that is, is that he was a rapper in a hip hop group in the 90s, Keegan. Mm, amazing. Oh, my gosh. So I actually went on YouTube today and I listened to some of his rapping Mm -hmm. his voice is so low it sounds like they had to turn it down on the voice like his tone is so low so in 1994 he started rapping in this group called Screwed Up Click and those are the people that you can actually find on YouTube still and listen to the music and like this group must have been pretty big because they have their own Wikipedia page so it's like a thing Um, but in the rap that I listen to I sound like such a square when I say that oh my gosh In the rap. In the rap that I listened to, everybody, uh, there was a line in there that I saw a lot of people quoting in the comments, and it really jumped out at me, too. But there's one line where he says, catch me on TV nationwide, that just kind of was like, ugh, like a stab to the heart. But he was so great that even the New York Times wrote about him. Uh, They said that he had, New York Times described his deep-voiced rhythms and calling his voice purposeful. It's so like, that's super fucking cool. And he would rap a lot about his third ward pride. He had a lot of pride and where he came from. Um, And after Screw Up Click, he joined a group called Presidential Playas, which I'm not a fan of that name. <laughs> I think they could have done better. Well, <laughs> pres- it was the 90s. It or was the 90s. 2000s, you know,
0: yep. well, it was this a weird was- time. Everybody was a, a playa or a, a lil. Yep. Lil, lil something. You know?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think one of my uh, AOL screen names at one point was just Lil Mads something. I'm sure. Sounds yeah, like everybody. something I would Those do. Everybody. So with Presidential play as though, he worked on their 2000 album, Block Party.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that I really liked about him whenever I was reading about his life was all of his work within his community. I, I mean, know. people within his community actually really liked him and he was very open in sharing about his experiences his hardships his yeah
1: and that made Um, him relatable to the people in his community that really they grew so much respect for him i think by him being so open about his life, Absolutely.
0: And, you know, we are going to talk about it in a moment, but he did serve time in prison. He did grow up in a poverty struck neighborhood. Um, and there is a video of him addressing youth in his neighborhood. And he tells the audience that he does have his own shortcomings and flaws and that he isn't better than anyone else. But also Talks about how upset he is about the violence that's taking place within the community and tells his neighbors to put down their weapons and remember that they are loved by him and by God. Yeah, And I also wanted to point this out because so often in conversations about Black Lives Matter... On our social media, this happens a lot. Uh, people like to talk about black-on-black black crime. People like, like yeah. to point out neighborhoods in Chicago uh, and things like that. And what I don't think people understand or realize is that even in communities of color where there is a lot of crime, a lot of violent crime, first of all, again, I'll say it a million times, I'll say it every episode of our podcast, nothing exists in a vacuum, we gotta put that so, on a
1: shirt, dude.
0: Yes, yes. So, but like, so there are reasons why neighborhoods um, get like that: lack of education, well, and we were just talking about access, redlining. You know, right? It all yes, lacks together of access. Um, people who are put in situations where their needs are not being met. There are a lot of a lot of those things, but also when people like to point out black on black crime they don't like to point out the fact that there are members of these communities who are trying to find ways to work outside of the system uh-huh. a system that is not helping them uh-huh. to better their communities definitely um so that is extremely important to to talk about yeah it's not as if these things are just happening and everybody is just like
1: okay with it or not doing anything about it. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Yeah, I mean, just because you're not seeing it on a nationwide level doesn't mean that there aren't people that really care about their communities and want to make it better. And he definitely was one of those people. Um, He was part of a lot of different you know, volunteer organizations. He delivered meals to senior citizens. And he volunteered for projects like Angel by Nature, which is a charity founded by the rapper Trey the Truth. Um, And it really sounds like for him finding christianity was a way for him to help turn his life around a little bit i do want to talk a little bit about the time that he had been i guess quote unquote in trouble with the law before because i have i feel a certain sort of way about some of this as well because between 1997 and 2005 he served eight jail terms on various minor charges including drug possession theft and trespass I think right like i I had to I put myself in those situations, and I don't know I don't know the stories of his trespassing and his drug possession and his theft, but I also think that a lot of these minor jail terms also point to a lot of, I think, very racist views of who he was. Because I I I don't agree. I don't know if a white guy, you know, when I think drug possession, I think about all of the men who are still and women who are in prison for marijuana possession. You know, I think of I I, I wish I knew more about the back story of this, because the fact that these were all very minor offenses, I think people can point to, oh, well, he was in jail eight times and not realize that there's more nuance to it than that. Right. I mean, and again, these like drug possession,
0: theft and trespass, um, drug possession. I I don't know what. Drugs he was in possession of. We do know that he struggled with methamphetamines and opioids um, later in his life. I don't know what what yeah. drugs he was in possession of, but if you look at the correlation between drugs and poverty, uh-huh. it is generally high because oftentimes people are trying to escape their circumstances. So there's that. Um, also, trespass and theft are also things that come out of desperation. Those are crimes of desperation. Exactly. Oftentimes they're, they're coming out of communities where people's needs are not being met Mm -hmm. for one reason or another. Now I will say he did face charges of aggravated robbery one time and that crime did seem to be, um, of a violent nature. It, It was him with, with several other people. So that, that is the one that I can say, okay, and I do think that it is the one that he served the longest sentence for. Yeah, um, he, was, however, he was
1: sentenced to five years as part of a plea deal for that. Crime. However,
0: you know, I think we can hold him accountable mm-hmm. for his decisions, his mistakes, his the crimes that he did commit. Yep. And because, you know, that that one was not a victimless crime. So I I do want to at least say that I'm not trying to whitewash his past. No, But I am saying that none of us are perfect human beings, that life is complicated, and that no one is all good or all bad, and that someone's past does not make them less valuable as a person or more deserving of murder, and that we all deserve a chance at redemption. And it does seem as though when he got out of prison, he really did... You want to yeah every live everything we just mentioned everything we just yes. mentioned is what he yes. did
1: after his time in prison and wanted to take what I think was probably a huge lesson that he learned and probably again a really good time for him to look at himself to come out of that circumstance better mm-hmm. than he was before. you know i I think Absolutely. it's one thing to look at the mistakes that somebody's made, but it's another thing to look at what choices they made to get themselves out of those mistakes.
0: Right, absolutely.
1: It's it's hard to dig your when you and I'm
0: saying this as somebody whose family has had a lot of issues. I have cousins in prison, uh, you know, and and in large part it's for similar reasons, crimes of desperation or drug crimes largely stemming from poverty. Yeah. You know, and so I I understand I understand what could get a person there. Totally. Right? And it's, and it's not excusing anything that they they may have done. It's not excusing it, but it's just saying, okay, what are the circumstances? Can we try to understand it? And then what is the purpose of prison? Is the purpose of prison, um, or what should, I guess, what should the purpose of, of prison be? Should it be to rehabilitate people, to give them a second chance at life, uh, to allow them an opportunity to have a better life. Yeah, to make different so, choices. Yeah, so um I know that a lot has been made of his criminal record. You've got Candace Owen saying, you guys are turning a criminal into a martyr and and things like that. And I just think that it's such a narrow view. Yeah, you're looking at one
1: small aspect of a whole person's life. Of, of a
0: whole person's life. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's, it's so demeaning yeah. and insulting and diminishing especially for somebody who wasn't like you know I think of people who are like career criminals bad people people who do bad things over and over and over again then yeah maybe I would be thinking differently but this is a person who's gone through some shit in their lives and somehow was able to pull themselves out the best that they could and continue to try to be the best person that they could be for the rest of their lives and that's that's important to me So it's important to me, too. And I I also want to say, you know,
0: because we do know that it's a lot has been made also of the fact that he relapsed and the fact that he did have drugs in his system at the time that he died. A lot has been made of that. We we all of us in this country know somebody who is affected by. That's what I was
1: going to say. This is not. uh, And I again, I want to see a white person who's killed and have them try to pull the same shit and say that it was because of the (laughs) drugs or things like that, or to even make a big deal of the fact that the drugs were in his system. Like, I feel like that's just such a, uh, again, it's a shady move. It's it's racist. Look at the difference between the way the opioid crisis yes. has been
0: has been reported on when it is largely affecting the Midwest and South, uh-huh. um, and largely affecting white communities yeah. in the Midwest and South. And look at the way the crack epidemic mm-hmm. was reported on in the 80s and 90s when it was largely um, black communities who were being ravaged and affected by by that Definitely. particular drug epidemic. Look at the difference between the way that it's being reported on, where we're supposed to look at one with sympathy and, oh, my gosh, we have to do something about this. Uh-huh. It's destroying our, our youth and our communities. And the other one was looking, was basically saying, well, what did you expect? Yep. Like, of course, they are all addicted to crack. And it was a joke. Yeah. Well, you know and what it's I mean? Just,
1: there's such a dehumanization of drug addicts, I feel like, in our country, too. Uh, yes. Just this lack of sympathy compassion. and compassion for yeah. it. You know, like, it, it's an illness. Like, it, this... Being addicted to something is not always a choice, and also if you are not fully equipped to have healthier coping mechanisms that work mm-hmm. for you, those are things that would be easy to fall back into. And when recovery is hard, yeah, when it, it doesn't hard. look one way, just because you've gone through you know rehab or treatment or whatever, it doesn't mean that you are cured. Um, you know his girlfriend testified on on the stand talking about, and I think we talked about this in the mini episode, talking about their history with opioids. And, you know, they both just, she discussed that they both had chronic pain and their prescriptions were given to them by a doctor. They were prescribed to them. And that's how it happens with everybody. With a lot of people, you
0: you know, especially given his size, let me say that as well. You know, I... You knew my ex boyfriend. He was not a big guy, but he was a very, very tall guy. Tall, yeah, and but just a
1: beanpole.
0: Yeah, he was six foot seven, so he was very tall. And he was in pain all the time because of his joints. Like he was in pain all the time. I can totally see how somebody. Um, I, I don't know if this is what happened. This is all speculation. Yeah, I didn't but even think I of I can that. totally, I can totally see how someone of his size who has been playing sports his whole life yeah. is in pain. Oh, totally. Like, you know, that that would make sense to me. Um, and also, we we tend to pick and choose who we have sympathy for in terms of like there are, when, when Philip Seymour Hoffman dies of an opioid overdose, yeah. there's this outpouring outpour- of sympathy. When DMX dies of the same thing, not the same. People response. tend to turn it around, like 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 he's deserving of it, and it does seem like he was trying to to get clean and yeah. stay clean in twenty in twenty fourteen he actually moved to Minneapolis to help rebuild his life and find work, and soon after his arrival, he completed a ninety day rehabilitation program yeah. in Minneapolis and <coughs> actually expressed a need to get work. Um, he took up a job at he took up security work at the Harbor Light Center, which is a Salvation Army homeless shelter, and um, he did, you know, lose his job after that. They don't say why. Yeah. I'm assuming it probably has something to do with his drug use, it could potentially. Be. yeah. There was a few um,
1: jobs that he was kind of in and out of, uh, and they said that there were periods of him being in his addiction and periods of him in sobriety, so it sounds like, you know, not on solid ground when it comes to that and trying to kind of make a new life in a new way for himself. And I remember that being discussed a lot when the story first broke, you know, talking about him moving to Minneapolis and wanting to start over and help. He's got, I think five kids. He has a lot of kids, you know, and wanted to make the best life that he could for himself and for his children. So that was why, why he got there to Minneapolis. Yes, I, I did want to point out that in
0: 2019, George Floyd worked security at the El Nuevo Rodeo Club um, and Derek Chauvin also worked off-duty as a security guard in the same club. Yeah, they so worked the insinuation at the there same place. At the same time. At so the, the insinuation time. there is that they... Did know each other in some capacity there was some kind of now we don't know what was the nature of their relationship I don't think anybody has even stepped forward to say there was a guy they there
1: was a guy there was was a guy that worked with both of them who has retracted his statement since because he thought that George Floyd was somebody else but he was like oh yeah Chauvin had a real problem with this guy and kind of made this whole thing about how they had beef And that, so that was in the headline for a while, but there, I even, I looked on Reddit even, I was kind of trying to do some digging to see if anybody was speculating or talking about them knowing each other, and it seems like if they did know each other, it would maybe just be like, they would maybe recognize each other in that situation and in that location, but it doesn't sound like there was any sort of recognition on the scene of the day of his murder.
0: Okay, I mean, it seems like George Floyd would be hard to miss, uh, yeah, but, very wouldn't, distinctive.
1: but wouldn't Floyd recognize Chauvin, too? You know, it just didn't well, seem like there was any, like, it, it's recognition hard to say. between them. I mean,
0: it, it is hard to say. Derek Chauvin is very hard to read. That That's something that I felt... He just looks like a um, troll
1: face. I don't know what he's he doing. He just...
0: He looks very... <sighs> Like it doesn't he doesn't show a lot of emotion, period. He didn't look like in the video um that we all saw with his knee on George Floyd's neck that he was really expressing a lot of emotion there at all, even though there was a lot of bystanders um, you know, being very audibly and visibly distressed yeah. during during the situation. He didn't seem to be displaying a lot. And that was actually one of the things that People noted at his trial was that they think it worked against him that even with his mask on, he still seemed very stoic, oh, and yeah. very cold, very and much like so. didn't didn't express much of anything. And I watched his face whenever the verdict was being read, Oof. and I didn't see much of anything. So it's hard to say whether or not he recognized George Floyd on the day of. Yeah, I feel George like George Floyd was. Um, unfortunately there were drugs in his system at the time. So it, it's hard to say if they recognize each other. I don't know. I feel
1: like it's a red herring. I feel like it's something that.
0: It doesn't matter at the end of the day. It doesn't
1: matter. No, I think it's, it's something that fascinated me a lot and that I definitely did a lot of digging to try to like figure out and I probably will still do that in the future. But as of right now, I think it's a huge coincidence, but a bit of a red herring. That there was like some sort of, you know, vendetta against him or anything like that. I don't I don't I don't necessarily think it was
0: it was a vendetta. Uh, I don't necessarily think that. But it would be surprising to me for two unless they worked opposite hours, which I suppose is a possibility um, for two people to work in the same place in a similar job, both in security uh, and not recognize each other I yeah. know each other but I i mean I could be wrong I could totally be wrong yeah that
1: that is definitely an interesting part of the story to me and I would be interested to know if more about that I, I have a feeling that you know the, the farther you get away from investigations and cases I feel like more and more things come out through the years of people being willing to talk about stuff so maybe we'll learn more about their relationship and more about who he was as a person for years to come, you know, as people feel comfortable.
0: I would be surprised if no one at that club had come forward sooner, if there was something going on there. Well, but maybe they
1: didn't want to put themselves out there in something this big. That's true. You know, so I'm wondering if, you know, after some time has passed and it isn't such a hot button news topic, if maybe there will be some people who will come forward and discuss it, if there will be more... Um, information about the investigation that comes out that we aren't aware of or anything like that. You know, I don't know. I don't know.
0: Yeah. So uh, the next thing that we we have to talk about, but I want to keep this really brief, because I feel like at this point, we have discussed the details of George Floyd's death enough. Uh, So I do I do want to keep this really brief. The only thing that I will say is I did not ever I have not ever and I will never watch the full nine minutes of the video. I have watched enough. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for me and for many others, I think um, or, or maybe not, because maybe this is why it spread the way that it spread. But this was at a time when videos would autoplay. On Facebook, and that is how I saw it. Oh God! Because um, I opened my Facebook, and the I, was, I remember the, you telling me that thing. now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, and and it auto played, and I w- I had just woken up, so I was still in my bed, oh, and God. I wasn't even really awake yet, and so I I I was I was watching it for much longer than I thought before I really realized what was happening. Yeah, and I will never get over. I, and I feel like a lot of people feel you this way. You shouldn't and get again, over it. Like it's not something and, and, that you
1: can get over,
0: right? I mean, I, I, we're not we're not meant to watch people die. No. I don't think that that's that's how we're built. And I, I will say, as as distressing as I think that was, and as glad as I am that I think that they have put things in place to prevent some of that from happening now, I do think that it probably did contribute. To the way that this story... Or the way that this video spread on social media. The fact that these videos did just play right away. And we had very... My Facebook status that morning was... I opened my eyes and the first thing I saw was somebody... Dying with a knee on their neck. You know what I mean? Um, But the thing that struck me the most, I think, about... This case. All these cases are tragic. Philando Castile... I still cry yeah. when I think about that case. Mm-hmm. All of these cases are are tragic, but I think the thing that struck me the most when they covered his death at the trial and also in the video was that s- so many people actually did try to intervene. Yeah. You know, a lot of people who testified at the trial were saying that they felt a tremendous amount of guilt for not having done more. Um, but the truth of the matter is, I've actually never seen a video like this where so many people did say something and tried to intervene. Yeah,
1: I mean, I was, you know, I had seen, I have not watched the full, you know, nine minutes, 60 second, however long video. I think it was, did they say that the actual act was nine minutes and 23 seconds? I believe. Nine minutes and
0: 20 something seconds. Yeah, Yeah. because
1: originally it was the eight minutes and 46 seconds and then that was that was proven not to be correct. Um yeah, I mean I was I was impressed and surprised by the number of bystanders that were there on the scene and also the amount of bystanders that testified. I think was really fantastic. Yeah, this it really is crazy and I'm so glad that he was actually charged and convicted for this because it was so brazen of him to do that when there were so many people there. Right, I mean, it, it speaks to his arrogance yeah. that he
0: thought that he could get away with this when there are people surrounding him saying, check his pulse, yep. he isn't moving, get off of his neck, are you serious? Um, a woman actually says on the tape, he's black, they don't care. Like they're, It's it's very much out in the open. He's getting, he's he, he's reading the room. Of, like, what what people are thinking of what's going on. But as we said with the um, headline that was put out later that day after George Floyd died about it being a medical incident, um, they knew or thought they knew that they would be able to cover this up no problem. Yep. So so they weren't concerned about the fact that people were around trying to check them. No, but they
1: should have (laughs) been. But they should have been. They should have been very, very concerned. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. The Emmy-nominated HBO original series A Black Lady Sketch Show is back. Don't miss an all-new season of your favorite characters on the hilarious sketch comedy series featuring creator Robin Thede, Ashley Nicole Black, Gabrielle Dennis, Lacey Mosley, Sky Townsend, and tons of celebrity guests.
1: And to get you ready, we are giving away Eden Body Works gift cards to celebrate the premiere. Head to our Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist to learn how you can be entered to win... Watch a black lady sketch show Fridays at 11 p.m. on HBO and streaming on HBO Max. All right. Should we get this started? Yeah,
0: let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the trial. Yeah, Uh, we did talk some about this in a past mini episode. I can put that in the show notes so that you know which mini episode we talked about. We talked about the first four days, I think, of the trial in which a lot of the witnesses came forward. So if you want to hear some more like specific specifics that we don't cover here go back and listen to that episode but um yeah i did want to do just kind of a broad overview of of the trial itself definitely
1: so the judge for this trial was peter cahill who's been a judge since 2007 and previously worked as both a public defender and a prosecutor which i was like that's a great background to have as a judge Mm -hmm. to have both sides experience you know Our lead prosecutor was Keith Ellison, who is the Attorney General. And along with him were Matthew Frank, Jerry Blackwell, Stephen Schleicher? Schleicher, Sorry, Stephen. (laughs) And Aaron Eldridge. And the defense was Eric Nelson. Boo! 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 Okay, so I have... A lot written about everything that happened before <laughs> and during, and you know, all of the different ways that the defense from the beginning was trying to get this thrown out. Um, jury selection was back in the winter, and I think we did probably touch on this a little bit, but I think that it's good to note that. When the jury was being asked questions, they were sent a questionnaire asking about their views mm-hmm. on the criminal justice system, the police, and social movements, including Black Lives Matter. Did they carry a sign at a protest
0: last summer? Yeah. If so, what did it say? Mm-hmm. They they were doing all kinds of things like that. Yeah, yeah, they
1: asked what they thought of Blue Lives Matter, about defunding the police, kind of bringing up a lot of like the hot button topics to see their responses I'm amazed that they could find a somewhat impartial jury the jurors are anonymous we don't know anything about them um, besides their gender and their their gender and their race that they Mm -hmm. listed right? and age age. Um, so we don't know how how those answers affected the jury pool or anything like that I I would imagine it would be very hard to find someone impartial especially with how the video circulated
0: Exactly, the defense tried to get it moved. Like tried to get the <laughs> the trial moved. You'd have to move it to Tasmania. Sorry, everybody. But that's knows. exactly that's exactly right. It was very clear to me that they were only trying to get it moved because they were trying to delay the trial, yeah, as much as possible. They were just trying to delay the trial as much as possible. And yeah, I think that. Um, Everyone saw through that, and basically that's what they said. They were like, there's nowhere we're going to be able to take this trial where you're going to find an impartial jury. Right. Like, it's it's just not going to happen. Everybody has opinions. Nobody is unaware of what happened last summer. Right. Nobody. Nobody,
1: yep. So let's talk about what the prosecution's case was.
0: Okay. So I will say, I think that the prosecution did a very effective job. Yes. I think that, that what they did, their opening statement, I feel like was incredibly powerful. Uh, they also showed the video in its entirety mm-hmm. and there were members of the jury. There was a woman who was in her sixties. I think the oldest member of the jury who had not seen the video uh, in, at, I mean, definitely not. It's in its entirety, but I don't think she had seen it at all. Wow. And it was a difficult watch for her was described you know the press the few press who were allowed in the courtroom described her reaction as as she had to look away from it it was obvious that she was distressed by it as was everybody yeah
1: yeah you know you would have to be heartless to watch that video and not crumple like a piece of paper on the ground it is the worst thing to witness um yeah i mean i think that the prosecution did a great job at preempting what the defense was going to try to throw at them especially with the manner of death Um, there was a lot you know with autopsies you know the defense was bringing up people who were saying that it should have been listed as you know, undecided rather than homicide, you know, so I think that the prosecution also did a really great job at pointing out why the defense would be wrong about that before they were able to try to make their case to see that no, it wasn't because you know, he did have some pre existing conditions, he had some heart blockages and things like that. But luckily, they were able to show that Had it not been for Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's Mm -hmm. neck on that day, George Floyd would not have died on May 24th, 2020. That's exactly right. Right. That's exactly right. Which should be a no given. It should be an obvious thing for everybody. But I am really glad that they walked through all of that and cover their bases 100 percent to kind of preempt what they thought that the defense was gonna bring. And I thought well, that was And they great. were
0: right because it's all the defense had to bring. The defense had nothing else and they knew that. And I, I like that the prosecution's main thing was essentially trust your eyes. Yeah. And and trust your intuition. When you watch this video, do you what do you see? That's basically what exactly. they asked. When you watch this video What do you see? You see a man pleading for his life, saying he cannot breathe. You see bystanders saying you're killing him. He can't breathe. Check his pulse. That's what you're seeing. And that's what they heard from witnesses as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I think that allowing the raw emotion of these witnesses Allowing them to express their emotion on the stand was a very smart move yes. by the prosecution. Having a lot the of the
1: bystanders get up and discuss their experience, yes. I think was so and their effective. Yes, they actually
0: talked about you know ab- about how they felt about it, and um, you know I think something that really drove it home for a lot of people as well was there was a nine-year-old girl who unfortunately had to witness this situation and absolutely um, horrible. And to hear a child. Say that this made me sad and a little mad.
1: Yeah, is what she
0: said, and 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 to me that just makes me want to cry because it's such a childlike
1: statement. It's just simple. It's simple and honest. You know, right? It just it gets Mm -hmm. right to the core of things. Another thing that I thought was huge in this trial is that we had so many. Police officers come forward and say that his behavior was not okay. Uh, The acting police chief Madaria Arredondo of the Minneapolis Police Department testified that Chauvin violated police policy when he knelt on Mr. Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes. I loved that this whole protect your brothers in blue kind of thing went down a little bit during this trial where you had some people who were in the same job as Derek Chauvin who were able to say, no, this isn't proper behavior. This is not how you act on the job. And I don't think that that's ever – has that ever really happened in a case like this where – would go against each other. Not in
0: this way. Not in this way. I don't think, and I, I think a lot was made of that. I think a lot of people, um, a lot of news outlets, especially reported on the fact that that is something that happened. And don't get me wrong, I'm very grateful yeah. that that did happen. Um, but there is a very cynical part of me that feels like, okay, but you had to cut your losses. Yeah, like you realized like this was a um, this was a bad look, and um, that. You had to sacrifice somebody and you were like, well, sorry about you, Derek. You know, that's because I do feel like that's I feel like if it hadn't been on tape, if there hadn't been if a a police station hadn't been burned down, that first statement um,
1: got to keep that in your memory.
0: Yeah, that they wouldn't. I think they would be trying to cover for him right now. I do. And and I think that point the fact that he had so many complaints Against him that this wasn't the first time that he had been violent while on the job speaks to that. He was allowed to keep his job all this time. So thank you for doing the bare minimum and showing up and saying, you know, hey, this was not okay. But pardon me if I'm a little cynical and think that maybe you just did it because you had to.
1: I mean, (laughs) I I think you you nailed it. I think that you're totally right. I didn't even think of that. But I think... You nailed it. I'm grateful. Like I'm, I'm happy they totally. Did it. But I'm I think, saying. but that makes so much sense to me. That totally makes sense to me. I think that it is definitely a huge thing because we've never seen it. You know, mm-hmm. it hasn't happened before. But yeah, you know, you got to wonder about people's intentions sometimes. So I think it's I think it's totally right to be a bit skeptical about they it. They were like, "Please don't burn down another target. Uh, we need the targets in Minnesota, <laughs> please." Uh, another big kind of breakout star for me which feels like a weird thing to say but I love him so much would be George's younger brother Philonise Floyd which I heard that name so I've never heard the name Philonise in my life and I heard that listen black people give
0: their kids the weirdest names it's beautiful I mean look I'm not saying it's not beautiful I'm just saying there's a reason why you've never heard it and it's because I, I speak as a black person who has an uncle Galton um, uh, my brother's middle name is Ulysses, okay? Okay, like, no, we, Ulysses we Grant, okay, names.
1: come on, that's a Okay, name. but do you, do you know a Ulysses Madigan? It's my best friend's do you know dog's one? middle name. Okay. (laughs) Um, I also when I was dating my ex, he was Dominican and that was something he would always say about Dominican people. They would like take two names and put it together to make a new one. So he had family. Black people do that with some people do that great names. I think that's rad. It's awesome. So I
0: I went to elementary school with twins and they were La Antoine. uh, No, they were La Antoinette and.
1: De Antoine. My friend in middle school was Zanetta and her younger sister was Zavetta.
0: See, I love, I mean, listen, I love the ingenuity, I love the creativity. I love but it, it. does make me laugh when I hear about a person in the year 2020 or 2021 with the name Philonious.
1: I- it's That's not Philonious, it's Philonese. Oh, I'm sorry, Ease. It's oh my gosh, Philonius is even like a name. This is like it's like Phil and then O N I S E. I mean, it obviously is a name, but I've never heard it yes. before. But this was George's younger brother, and he testified as well, talking about his close relationship that he had with him. And another relationship that was really highlighted was the relationship that George Floyd had with his mother, which I thought was really special and really sweet. Um, that was for me one of the most heartbreaking parts of the of the video was when he was crying out for his mother. I don't think that anybody who doesn't have a mother or isn't a mother couldn't hear that and immediately have that rip your heart out because all of us have felt that moment of just wanting your mom, you know? So I think... Right, well,
0: and I think it drives it home even further because this is, you know, we have all of these preconceived, deeply internalized social biases about black men in particular... Uh Um, big black men, especially uh that to hear someone like George Floyd not be strong and strong in the way that we think of being strong right, you know to be emotional uh, and
1: vulnerable vulnerable
0: yeah. and and call out for your mother in in that moment. Yeah. I think that that's something that really hit a lot of people really hard, yeah, you know, because we're so used to seeing this very hyper masculinized version of of a, what a black man is, yeah, you know that to to see and hear that it really drove home to a lot of people I think that he was human in in distress, yeah, and and in just like complete distress yeah
1: and he was such a mama's boy from what I hear too, which I love a mama's boy. I think it's always great. It just
0: hurts. It just breaks my heart so
1: much. So let's talk about what the defense tried to do. So I really appreciate that Judge Cahill tried to limit the amount of Floyd's past that was brought into the courtroom. Uh, It was irrelevant. Yeah, and that's what he said. Like, these things weren't relevant to the case. But fucking... Eric Nelson was allowed to open his defense with a video of a 2019 arrest of George Floyd, to which I say, how very fucking dare you? Because it's not relevant. Yeah, it's not. Know, the
0: thing is, the thing is, the defense, our legal system, I understand why it works the way it works. Everybody is entitled to a strong defense defense. That's how the legal system works. And and quite honestly, I think it does need to work that way. Everybody should be entitled to as good of a defense as they can get. And I think that that's that's fair across the board. Um, And so I will say that his defense team did the best they could with the steaming pile of shit that they were presented. And they're just
1: pieces of shit because the things that they were trying to throw at the jury were absolutely ridiculous to me like of course but they had they they had no defense like there was nothing that they could have presented like there there was even something where it sounded like eric nelson was trying to say that george floyd was faking it that saying things like i can't breathe i'm claustrophobic and calling out for his mother was like a defense strategy. Like, it's just... It's gross. They were grasping at straws and saying such... I don't know core, how you live with yourself when you... How do you sleep you, at night?
0: I don't... And again, I, I do... I, I have a hard time writing this line because I do think everybody deserves a, a defense. Defense attorneys have to exist. Like, I get all of yeah. that. But at the same time, I could not live with myself if I was... Saying these things yeah. about about somebody who has been murdered. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and I did want to mention, because I mentioned it earlier in the episode, there was a Minneapolis Police Department medical support coordinator by the name of Nicole McKenzie, who was also called as a witness for the defense. And she was questioned about something called excited delirium. And I'm going to mention this really quick, because it's something that has been used in virtually every cop-killing case that there's ever been, and Wikipedia defines excited delirium as an alleged syndrome used to explain deaths in police custody. It is described as a combination of psychomotor agitation, delirium, and sweating. It may include attempts at violence, unexpected strength, and very high body temperature. Now, this is not recognized by the vast majority of medical professionals, nor by the World Health Organization, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Medical Association, and it is not listed as a medical condition in the DSM-5 either.
0: Then it shouldn't be allowed to be presented at court. Why is it allowed to be presented at court? Ding, 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 ding.
1: That's the right answer. I have no idea
0: why. I have no idea why. That doesn't make any sense because then it's just speculation and your opinion. You shouldn't, uh, that shouldn't be allowed. Exactly, (laughs)
1: exactly. So let's talk about what happened the other day. Uh, when we got the verdict, so on April twentieth, the jury announced that it had reached its final verdict after only ten hours of deliberation. We discussed our nerves and our mm-hmm. hope and our feelings Indeed. in the beginning, so as I was so
0: I was texting you because I had a meeting that was starting, and I was like, "I can't believe I have to go to this meeting, and it was a big like sixty person meeting, and I was like, "I am so shocked that nobody has called this off." And I had to go because it was like my big, big boss was having this meeting. And then somebody got on. They turned their camera on, which doesn't happen Mm -hmm. as much. And they turned their camera on and they were like, hi, sorry, excuse me. I emailed our boss. And I, like, let her know, but, like, can we just move this meeting? <laughs> yeah. She's, like, given everything that's happening right now, can we all just agree that we don't need to be in this meeting? Yeah, I'm and so And my boss got on and was, like, yes, we can cancel this meeting and we'll do it another time. And I was, like, thank
1: god yeah i'm really glad that that happened i was about to drive postmates when i heard so i had my like cnn live on youtube tv just on my phone while i was getting home so i could at least hear everything and Mm -hmm. oh man i was i was worried but luckily derek chauvin was found guilty on all three counts his bail was revoked and he was remanded into custody uh, where he was transferred to the Minnesota Department of Corrections and booked at the Oak Park Heights State Prison. So so I want to talk a little bit about the
0: charges yeah. and um, the presumptive sentencing. Definitely. So Chauvin was found guilty on the charge of second-degree unintentional murder. The presumptive sentence is 12.5 years. This charge means that Chauvin killed Floyd while committing or trying to commit a felony. This doesn't require intent to kill. And there was a, a... The judge said... Quote, it is not necessary for the state to prove the defendant had an intent to kill Floyd, but it must prove that the defendant committed or attempted to commit the underlying felony. So the maximum penalty for second degree murder is 40 years. Yeah. He was also found guilty of third degree murder, which has a presumptive. Uh, sentence of 12.5 years. This charge is a felony carrying a a maximum sentence of 25 years. It alleges that Chauvin, quote, caused the death of George Floyd by perpetuating an act eminently dangerous to others and evincing a depraved mind without regard for human life. He was also found guilty of second-degree manslaughter, which has a presumptive sentence of four years. The maximum sentence is 10 years. This charge alleges that Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd by his culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk and taking a chance of causing death or great bodily harm to George Floyd. So when the jury found him guilty on all three counts, it means that he will likely face the penalty for the most severe charge, which is second degree unintentional murder. I learned that in Minnesota, I had assumed that perhaps he would get these consecutively. Uh So have to serve one and then the other and then the other, um, or not. Yes. Consecutively. But in Minnesota, he will only serve the most severe charge. Yeah. So, that charge has a maximum penalty of 40 years but for those who have not previously been convicted of a violent crime the guideline range is typically 12.5 right so yeah um, and and
1: also i know that in a lot of places if you if it's one crime that you've committed and you have multiple charges they will typically have you uh get do your time concurrently doing it all at the same time if it's all from right. one event it will do it all at the same time so like right. I understand that that makes it makes sense I really hope especially because he doesn't have any legal record of being you know uh, a violent person I hope that the violence that was shown was enough to put him away for at least 12 and a half years my god if well, not, I would more, hope so. I, I,
0: And actually, the prosecutors are seeking a sentence that goes above the guideline range. They cited several aggravating factors, including that Floyd was particularly vulnerable because officers had already handcuffed him behind his back and placed him chest down on the pavement, so he yeah. was in a vulnerable position. And George Floyd clearly and repeatedly told officers that he could not breathe. Um, also, that Chauvin was a uniformed police officer acting in a position of authority. Yep. And and this is the biggest one that could potentially up his sentence. The alleged crime was witnessed by witnessed by several children, including a nine year old girl Ooh. who testified. Um, so, because the crime happened in front of children, yeah. there is a likelihood that his sentencing could be bumped up, but we will have to wait eight Eight weeks weeks. until sentencing. Hopefully
1: June 5th. That's kind of their presumptive date coming up. We'll know. We'll know it all. I I mean, I, I think that in any situation like this, we're obviously hoping for a maximum sentence. I am really hoping that this man feels like shit for the rest of his life. More than any prison sentence, I hope this man's life is over and ruined.
0: Yeah, I mean, and you know what's what's sad? Not, not sad, but was unexpected for me. I felt so much relief. I cried. I did feel vindication uh-huh. in watching him be carted away. Um, I did feel a sense of justice being served. But... I never like watching somebody's somebody just throw their fucking life away. Like it doesn't necessarily feel good to me that this is where we are yeah. and that people hurt people and then ruin lives including their own. Like it's just Right.
1: I think when you look at the whole situation, you see the lack of humanity and the lack of care for other human life the whole situation is so sad I cannot look at that asshole murderer's face uh, without feeling a sense of such rage in my heart that I didn't feel any of that I had a friend send me a text that was like I don't feel bad for him but like it's hard to watch and I understand that but I hate his fucking face so much
0: that yes. I did I mean, get a I little, don't, I, don't, I,
1: I hate to say it, but I did get a little joy out of it. But usually I am, I completely, and I'm glad that you I, said I that understand. because I, I yeah. completely agree with you that when you look at this situation, there is no justice. There is no winner. A man lost his life. Another man is going to prison. Like so many people have been affected right. by this, that this isn't, it's right. not a positive woohoo thing, but at the same time. When you've been so, I don't even know the words, being so scared and being so mad and and, and having everything play out the way that it has in the last year. Right. That moment oh, for yeah. me of seeing him in handcuffs, being oh, led yeah. away. Oh, yeah. Listen. Oh, I know you felt 100%. it too. I know you felt yeah, it too. I, I, but I
0: want to make oh. it clear to our listeners. I want to make it very clear to our listeners because I don't want I don't want anybody coming into my DMs. Okay,
1: I don't think anyone I is gonna am, think that you're that you feel bad for murder or good. Chauvin. Good
0: because I I do not like. I am very glad that. He was convicted. Right. It's of course what needed to happen, and there was relief, and there was even some joy. I felt joy for um, George Floyd's family. I, I felt, you know, watching, watching people in tears, hugging, cheering, celebrating um, out in the
1: streets. Yeah, c- celebrating. Yeah.
0: You know that it did fill me with with a lot of warmth and joy. The only reason why I say why I say that is, is just because, um, yeah, at the end of the day, children lost their father and like people, people lost a loved one. And this is something that continues to happen over and over. And it just fills me with deep sadness. Well, and, and there was, there was part of me watching Derek Chauvin be handcuffed and taken away that had those conflicting feelings only because, I still feel well, such a deep amount of sadness yes. that this was such an avoidable situation. Well, well, because for because everybody involved, the
1: crime—you know—the crime wasn't just about the perpetrator or the victim. The crime involves right. family, friends, loved ones on both sides. I'm sure there are people who love of Derek Chauvin, you know, and, and I think that that's why it's important to point out because we can't we can't lose our humanity entirely. Entirely, I, yes, we have to I have agree. compassion and be able to see. The human being behind the act. I completely, completely agree with that. All I'm saying in the moment, I felt none of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: yes. So let's let's talk a little bit about our closing thoughts. Kind of, kind of wrap the episode up and bring us bring us to a close. Um, what up. were your What were your kind of like closing closing thoughts uh, of the the trial and and your feelings afterwards?
1: I mean. I think for me, it was such a learning experience. It was such an education. It was such an in-your-face-you-need-to-take-a-look-at-yourself kind of thing for me and also take a look at the state of the world around me, take a look at the people in my life. I think that the whole experience was heartbreaking
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so maddening for me, I think, because I am an empath, I tend to f- to feel things very heavily, and yeah. it, it did very, very much affect me emotionally. I, as I've learned more about George Floyd, I felt to know him more as I don't want to say a friend because I didn't know him, but because I felt like I got to know him a little bit, it made everything feel so much heavier when the verdict came down. And I think there was there was this feeling of relief after watching TV last May and seeing the sadness and the anger and the violence in the streets and, and the buildings on fire to see a year later people celebrating in front of the cup foods that George Floyd was killed at mm-hmm. and letting that be a moment of coming full circle and... I don't know, just letting, letting the emotions of the past year, I think wash over everybody for me. That's just, that's the one feeling that I was left with was just kind of taking inventory of everything that's happened in this past year and how we got to that point, I think has been the most moving thing for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that it allowed a lot of people, myself included to grow, um, not that you know that that can almost feel selfish or Well yeah cuz we're not it's not it like, like oh
1: good thing a bad thing happens so that I can grow right. no
0: but but no but I I do think that that is something that came out of came out of it I think for myself even as somebody who has been aware of these issues for a long time even like I feel like I grew so much I became so much even more aware of of these instances uh, gave me a different perspective on not only the violence against black and Brown bodies, but also policing as a whole. Yep. uh, And, and what needs to happen there. Um, I am incredibly relieved that it happened the way it happened um, and that we were able to get some accountability in this situation my concern is that this verdict is going to give people permission to go back to sleep. Yep. That um, now they can look and they can say, we we did the thing. Progress was made. Now we can go back to doing nothing right, right. for the next 20 years. I mean, even though um, no real lasting change has been
1: made yet. Yeah. I, I Really quick, I want to interject and say that I... I hope for the sake of Dante Wright that that hasn't gone away, particularly in the Minneapolis community, because I think that there, there is a lot of celebration and we just had another life lost that needs attention and needs to get justice as well. So for me, I'm, I just keep saying, I'm hoping this move the needle in the right direction, but I'm not expecting I, everything to change. I hope so to too. I,
0: I hope so too. It is progress. I mean, you you look at Rodney King and you look at this this case, and you can tell that there is progress. And I am grateful for that. Right. Um. However, I am also not going to thank the powers that be for giving us
1: what we should what have. They should have given exactly us. like, like yes. th- This is
0: this is this isn't. I'm not gonna thank no, you. No, because for doing it never should have been
1: up for debate to
0: begin with. Right, yeah. right, right. Thank you. like like you're. I, I'm not gonna. What? Okay, so I think I just want to close with this because I saw this. Um, it's something that I had read before, but somebody else posted it recently, and I was like, "That is exactly kind of kind of how I feel right okay. now." So, um, Malcolm X was giving an interview at one point, and an interview. An interviewer said, you feel, however, that we're making progress in this country and worldwide. And Malcolm X said, no, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. If you pull it all the way out, there's still no progress. Progress is healing the wound that the blow made. Mm. And that's that's how I feel Mm. like incremental change is not enough. We don't need this to happen in baby steps. It's not going to. We need to legislative yeah. change. We need sweeping change um, to the way that our policing is done nationwide. Um, to the way that we are taught to respond and react to black and brown bodies. We need real, lasting progress. Giving me a band aid isn't going to fix a gaping wound. Yeah. So. So that's what I I need here. Yep. I, and that's a, I don't want to be cynical. I want to be happy for what there is to be happy about.
1: Uh-huh. I think that there's <laughs> but, room for both. There yeah, is, because yeah. I think that we, as people, we have to find happiness and relief in things or else we are never going to find yeah. peace and stability within ourselves. So we have to take this moment and cherish it and understand it for the importance that it has, but not let that cloud our perception of what's going to happen in the future and not forget what we just went through for a year with so many more black and brown bodies being killed every single day. Like, we, this is not done. Like, George Floyd is everywhere. We need to be giving the yes. same amount of yes. attention and respect and heart into all of these, really. And, and I hope that, you know, by... By pointing out so many of these flaws, and I and honestly, having a cop trainer, Kim Potter, who murdered Dante Wright, be somebody mm-hmm. who now hopefully will have the the microscope down on, we will be able to learn more and more about where we went wrong and be able to make changes. I just hope it continues
0: i I hope so, too. and i I do remain hopeful. I don't want to lose my hope you know i I remain hopeful Mm -hmm. that we will see changes but it means that everybody really needs to stay focused everybody needs to not let up i think that that's very important um and i think that everybody needs to examine like what i do like about um kind of the way that people responded to last summer is that i do think it forced people to examine their relationship with the police more closely and whether that meant kind of looking at and examining your own privilege um, or whatever that meant to you. I feel like people started to challenge those ideas that police are protectors of, of every Uh community. And I think that that is cracking the door open to hopefully some very real legislative change In policing, um, in this country, so keep doing yeah, that. Keep work. changing keep, the narrative about that. I think that's beliefs. huge. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah. I I mm-hmm. police the police now. There's cops in front of my apartment all the time. I am the nosiest neighbor in the world with my window shades open and my cell phone ready for anything in case you mm-hmm. make a fucking move. I yes. don't trust them. There you go. I don't trust them. <laughs> there you go.
0: There's good reason not to. Uh, fuck um, but the police. I, I do want to know. I. I I would love you. I would love for our listeners to write in. Let us know what your reactions were to the verdict. I would love to hear from you. Um, This is going to be, despite the cynical feelings I might have, this is going to be a where were you when JFK was shot moment. Definitely, definitely. Where people do do ask you what you were doing when the verdict came down um, and future generations will talk about this. And so let me know, let me know what you were doing, where you were and how you feel mm-hmm. about, about everything. Oh, so. And that's
1: where more change is going to happen to Keegan. It's the stories that we tell and it's keeping the, his name and this story and this whole situation in the forefront of our memories in order for us to continue to make changes. So yes, I would love to hear how everybody is reacting to this and feeling after this emotional roller coaster that we that we that mm. we really went on on this podcast. Um, it was yeah, nice yeah. to really uh, yeah. have some sort of, I guess, conclusion, but not ending To the story. Yes. You know? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. Oh, thank you. All right, everybody. If if you would like to share your feelings, if you want to give us recommendations for future episodes, if you want to say hi, you can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can chat with the other listeners in the group page and rate and review us on that business page. And if you have haven't already we appreciate it so much when you leave us a review on apple Podcasts. all right that is all that we have for you today with all of that being said we encourage you to rage on bye